You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Donald H. Taylor, an educator and researcher specialising in workplace learning and development, or L&D. Donald has more than 30 years of experience across the globe, from English language teaching through to roles as director and vice president of various software companies. In this episode, Donald provides insights into the L&D Global Sentiment Survey, a survey he created over 10 years ago to take the pulse of the global learning and development community. This one-minute survey attracts responses from thousands of respondents in over 80 countries, asking workplace trainers, facilitators and other professionals a single question, what will be hot in workplace learning and development this year. We explore approaches to survey scope and design, the data gathering processes, and final reporting. In our conversation, we find out some of the current trends, including reskilling and upskilling, the use of data to inform L&D planning and practice, the recent spike in interest of collaborative and social learning, and preferred technologies, along with regional trends, such as a strong interest in collaboration in Sweden and of micro-learning in New Zealand. Here's my conversation with Donald H. Taylor. So, Donald, very nice to be speaking with you. I, um, good, to be chatting with, good to be chatting with you too, Mark. Yeah. Um, now... When we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you had travelled around Europe as a teenager as a uh, something that had a, an impact. So could you tell us, maybe we can start there, find out more about that. Yeah, I'm a great believer. I mean, I'm, near, I'm approaching 60 now, and I'm a great believer in this idea of retrospective coherence, that as you look back, you can see these different things that form a path that takes you to where you are now. And the, in retrospect, it seems inevitable, although at the time, things might seem random. So as a young man, I spent a lot of time youth hosteling in Europe. Um, my mother had been a great one for youth hosteling as a, as a young woman in Scotland. I picked that up and carried on into Europe, partly going on Interrail, which was the deal where you bought a train ticket and you could travel around where you want to, and partly, partly uh, hitchhiking. And I remember as a 17-year-old um, hitchhiking across Europe. I was by myself, hitchhiking across Europe, ending up on a beach in, uh, on the east of Italy, in a place I think called Pescara, getting the boat over to Split, and then making my way up through Yugoslavia, as it was then, um, back to the UK, all through hitchhiking. And nothing particularly remarkable about that, except that I mean, not everybody did it, for sure. But it was interesting that I did this very much every summer holiday for a number of years. And when I left school, I went and worked for a year as a computer programmer. I figured, what's, what's the thing that's exciting at the moment? Computers seem to be important. So this, was, this would have been in 1981. I, I worked as a computer programmer locally. And then I went off and traveled in Africa for a year. Um, again, hitchhiking, bumming around by myself. And those periods of travel, I think, have 
very much informed my view of the world, literally and metaphorically. So literally, I see my position as being part of the world as a whole. And also, I see whatever I'm doing as being, I don't know, informed by the fact that we live in an interconnected global society. Plus, of course, uh, at, when I left university, so went to Africa, um, went to university, left university, and I went, or graduated from university, and I went to work in Turkey teaching English. And I, did, I was in Turkey for five years, and I was teaching English either full-time or part-time all the time I was there. And again, you know, spending a considerable amount of time abroad, living in a foreign country, learning the language, um, I think affects the way you see the world. Not always, of course. It's quite possible to um, live abroad and learn nothing. And neither am I claiming, by the way, it gives me some unique insight into life that is only possible for people who've done this. There are plenty of people who can get great insight without leaving their village. But for me, personally, what was important was that I had seen a variety of different ways of living and a variety of different ways of interpreting the world. And for me, I think that has, of all the things I did uh, before the age of 30, those were, I think, the most important things in terms of setting my worldview, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, it certainly does make sense. Yeah, and I guess we were in a, an era now where global global kind of connections and all of those sort of elements mm. are, are um, even more significant. Well, absolutely. And I think it's therefore been very useful without that having been at all, of course, deliberate. Plus, of course, I'm doing all this work around the global position of L&D and how it thinks about things. And I'm very aware that things are different in different parts of the world as a result of a number of things. And it's, it's very easy. It's very easy to speculate and to operate from a position of uh, assumption or prejudice about why somebody might think one thing in one part of the world and something different in another part of the world. Um, I like to think, not that I have the answers to this, but at least I'm wise enough to realize that you can't overstep the evidence and speculation is interesting up to a point, but beyond that, it can be quite dangerous. And it's really important not to overstep your data. Yeah, well, um, hoping- at the same time, yeah, sorry, go on, Mark. Oh, I'm hoping to get into more of that um, in, in a few minutes, just because data is your yeah. world, as I understand. Yes, um, it, it is. But, yeah, okay, you want to talk more, more about me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, just when you were teaching English, was that your first sort of – is that how you became, you know, first introduced to teaching or was it something that you were doing earlier? Or, um, yeah. No, it's, 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 it was my – introduction to teaching. So I, I taught English as a foreign language to adults. Um, and it's great. I mean, I have to say, Turkey is a great country. People are extremely friendly and hospitable. Uh, it, it's a great place to, having already spent some time you know, living away from home, to actually go and live in a different country. And it was straightforward teaching in the sense that you were doing formal courses. But at the same time, it was also informal and non-structured because you had to 
you had to take the business of learning quite seriously and give people the support they needed to learn outside the contact hours you had during the week. So it was very important if you, if you were doing it properly to not just give them homework to do, but also help them understand that they were in charge of their learning. So for me, it wasn't just a matter of teaching people English, but a matter also of teaching people how to learn, and in particular how to learn a language, because there were some particular techniques you can use around that. But then behind that, yes, learn how to learn, and learn the confidence and the motivation. And I think that was something I developed over time, and it has become something that I've become increasingly aware of as we as I get older, which is that of all the things that are important when you're learning something, motivation is one of the most important. Because if you haven't got motivation, nothing else follows. Uh, if you haven't got motivation, you can you can push yourself through almost any any uh, issue. So um, I learned a lot from the work I was doing and also the, the people I was working with. But then for various reasons, I came back to the UK and I, I didn't have a lot of money. I ended up um, staying with my mum in southwest london i was 28 and i i knew that i had to i couldn't just keep sort of doing a series of things when i was in istanbul i not just was teaching english i was also writing i did writing for the local newspaper i wrote books in english for an english language company i uh i did some sales work i ran a small a small sales office for a, a publisher and so on there were lots of different things i was doing i wrote a guide and published a guide to the city lots of things happening but in the end i i I figured, look, you know, I can't carry on like this. I need to focus on one thing. I came back to the UK and was able to get a job working for a startup that was doing IT training in 1992, which was just the point when everything was picking up in terms of Microsoft Windows. It was the time when I think Windows 3.1 was um, starting to make headway. Everyone was starting to have personal computers they need to know how to use Word and Excel. And here was a guy who had experience with computers, with um, with teaching, and also with a whole bunch of other things that are quite useful when you're in a startup. So the advert was literally, are you reasonably good at everything, which was kind of fit, I fitted the bill. And I was able, sort of within my first three months of probation, for example, I was able to help them produce a book that they were writing and and not just help them produce it, but actually take charge of it and get it down to the printers and make sure the whole thing was done on time because of the range of experiences I had. So that was a great experience. It was also very hard work. Um, and you know, I started off being a trainer, employee number 24, ended up by the end of 1999, being somebody who was in charge of the sales and marketing for the organization, which was now over 100 people, and which was part of a US organization, and also at the same time running the London office for this operation, which was the most profitable uh, single training center that we had in the whole of the organization anywhere in the world. So, and that was a $12 million turnover, if I remember correctly. So we had, um, we had, I learned a lot. I was, as always with a startup, picked up a lot of useful stuff. Um, but it was 1999 and you could not move for people doing things on the internet. So I went off, set up a small company um, on the 4th of January, I think it was 2000. I was kind of late. I should have started six months earlier. We all knew that the dot-com crash was coming. People were talking about it quite openly. But... Um, 
there wasn't that wasn't a problem actually necessarily. It simply meant the speculative money going into dot coms uh, suddenly got turned off. But there was still a need for the startup which I created, which was a a way of aggregating the courses from classroom companies. So up till that point, all of my work had been in the classroom, and the idea that i mean it just seems impossible to think of now but if you wanted to have your team go through for example a windows nt server course you had to phone up five different companies find out the times find out the dates and so on um i realized this and i produced a, a a very simple website that would aggregate the data from the different companies and you could go to one place to find it and i was able to do that because i had these strong connections with the different microsoft training partners in the uk and within uh I think I'm correct in saying within six weeks, we had a, the, from absolutely nothing, we had a company formed, we had the website up and running, and I was selling the subscriptions to the vendors. So it all worked very well. Sold that within a couple of years, then went on to join another startup, which was concerned with talent management, looking at the skills people have and how to deploy those. And we sold that within six years. And that takes us up to about 2010, at which point I'm the chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute. I've also, since 2000, in the background to all this stuff, been the chairman of the Learning Technologies Conference. And my course is kind of set um, towards where I am now, with the latest, I suppose, milestone on that journey being 2013, 2014, starting my Global Sentiment Survey, which is the, the thing which is really giving me the most um excitement i don't know that's too much of a word anyway i find it i find it fun to play with the data and coming back to the global thing look across the world and see what is the world saying about learning and the technology that supports it you're listening to perspectives in parryville So this survey, could you tell us more about what, what what's that about? Well, um, it sounds a bit trivial, but I ask people every year, what will be hot in workplace learning in the next 12 months? And it started in 2014. Um, within about three years, I've reached the format where I am now, where I give people a list of 15 things plus other to choose from. In the last couple of years, I've added a couple of voluntary questions, but always there's only ever one obligatory question. The obligatory question is, what will be hot in workplace learning in whatever the next year is? Uh, so it's a very straightforward mechanism. And the, the reason behind this approach is that I've tried doing surveys of L&D people in other ways to find out you know, what they think about things. But the data, I think, is always... I wouldn't say unreliable, but it's easy to overestimate the quality and the meaning of the data. So if you say to people, right, what's your budget? What are you planning on doing next year? And so on, you'll get replies from people. And in aggregate, if you have enough people contributing, it might mean something. But it's also quite possible for people answering don't really know what their budget is, which is not by any means unusual. They don't know how many people they have in their organization. When they say, yeah, we're going to do more of this and this and this next year, are they referring to a real plan or is it just something that somebody's dashing off the top of their head 
while they're having a cigarette or a cup of coffee between one bit of work and another. I think it's very dangerous to overstep the data and to assume that a survey you've done tells you more than it actually does. So I said to myself, well, the most basic thing you can ask somebody is, well, how do you feel about something? So we'll go with that. And the rationale behind that, which sort of came at the same time as coming up with this form of the question was, what I'm interested in thinking about really is what's going to be hot, in not now, but in two or three years' time. But if you ask people this question and you go out and you search for them via social media and via emails, and the people you get who volunteer to return an answer are the people who are naturally, technically more adept and also more interested in this. So in other words, you're dealing with the early adopters and the innovators. So if you've got those people and you're asking this question, then what you're getting an idea of is what the people on one side of the Everett Rogers, everyone's familiar with this curve, the Everett Rogers diffusion and innovation curve. What do those people at one end of the curve find exciting? And then the question is, well, of those things, which are going to get transferred over and adopted by the mainstream? It's not the case that everything which those people find exciting will be adopted by the mainstream, but it is the case that if anything's going to be adopted by the mainstream, first off, it has to be found to be useful and or exciting by the people who are the innovators and the early adopters. So let's say you've got 10 things they're excited about. It might be only one or two of them get adopted. But the trick and the exciting for me is to look at the data and say, well, which of these things do we think have got legs? Which are a flash in the pan? Um, and, and there are some things which don't fall into either of those two categories, which is quite interesting. So that was the rationale behind the whole thinking of the thing. Let's ask people a very simple question. And the thing was designed to be answered within one minute. So you could look at the list, make a very quick choice, and, and then move on to whatever else you were doing. So that it's a gut reaction. People aren't overthinking it. So that word hot is actually, it's kind of um, has a foundation in logic and uh, very, it's a very sensible kind of choice because you're wanting a particular kind of the feeling from these the, the participants. Absolutely. That's exactly what we want. We want that feeling. Uh, and and by using the word hot, it gives them permission because it's not mm. plans, budgets, anything like that. It gives them permission to be quite loose in their answers. Oh, what do I think? Now, the question is always, is it what I think will be hot, or what I think should be hot? And I do tell people, just reply with what you think will be hot. Inevitably, I know that some people will say, oh, well, this should be what's important this year but we you know i just have to live with those answers the advantage of having a short question like that is that you get you can get a lot of traction for it because people will just pass it on to their mates yeah this was fun read it bang and you know it's it happens that you do get word of mouth transfer of the survey so somebody does it they pass it on to somebody else that person does it very quickly unlike a lot of surveys which are quite onerous it's it's a fun thing to do in a short amount of time I've added a couple of extra questions in the past couple of years. One is where do you work? Because it's quite interesting to see how many people are in workplace learning, development, freelancers, education, uh, work for a vendor or whatever. And also last year and this year, what's your challenge? Last year is how will you respond to COVID? This year is what's your biggest challenge for the next um, 12 months? And it's it's very interesting how many people choose to answer those, uh, those questions because you don't have to. And they might just be there for the for the crack, for the fun of doing the short survey bit. But actually, to be fair, um, 
probably 40% of people answer the, the quite big free text question, what's your challenge? And nearly 80% of people say where they work, which is just a drop down. So I think people are quite committed to the idea of doing the survey seriously. They're not, they're not there just to do the, the quick thing. So we started off with, I don't know, a few hundred people answering it. And then this year, 2022, we've got 3,500 people from 112 countries. And I want to keep building it year by year. Again, going back to the idea of being internationalist. Uh, I'm very aware that you can't really have something being international without it including Africa uh, or South America or Asia. Uh, and I've fallen foul of that previously. The fact is I haven't had enough people from, from those continents. So last year, I made a real effort to get Brazil and South America on board. We did that and they stayed on board this year. And this year, big effort for Africa. And interestingly, with Brazil and South America, it was largely through one person I know there who was distributing the survey. And typically that's what happens. People are local to a geography and they are well-known in that area and they promote it. They get people to do it. But in Africa, I went out on LinkedIn. I did have one sponsor, eLearning Africa, or as a media partner. They don't put any money into it, but they, they help promote it. But what really made the votes um, take off was me approaching people on LinkedIn that I knew in particularly focus on Ghana, Nigeria, and South Africa and saying to them, I want to get the voice of Africa heard. And they enthusiastically rallied around and got the message out to people saying, hey, we need to have, and was that, that theme, the voice of Africa heard, being repeated. And in the end, we had 400 votes. Now, to go from zero, effectively, because we never had many votes in Africa, to 400 in one year is a very fast, um, it's a very fast buildup. I'm very confident we'll be doing the same thing next year because, uh, and more, because we've, I've developed some great relationships now with people in Africa that I'm in regular contact with. And going back to the first question you asked me about where I came from, I remember any number of times as a teenager, whether it was making cooking in a youth hostel outside Paris or chatting to some Kiwis with their combi outside uh, on the beach uh, in, in Italy or talking with this guy and his family in, in Yugoslavia. And I just stayed with them in their house and paid them a bit of rent for bed and breakfast. And wherever it is, there's always an interesting conversation to be had with somebody from a different part of the world who's got a different perspective. And so the Global Sentiment Survey for me is a way of doing this, continuing those conversations. And it happens all the time. When I'm having conversations with people on LinkedIn, hey, can you send the survey out? Yeah, Don. And we find, you know, they drop ideas and thoughts. But also, very often I'll do a webinar about the results for a particular geography. Um, so I've done it for Sweden for the last couple of years. And what's very interesting about Sweden, for example, is they always rate collaborative learning much higher than other countries, even in Europe, and certainly than the global trend. And it's why would that be the case? Well, I chat with the people in the webinar, and I say, well, can you tell me why this number is like this? Because I don't get it. And as it happens with Sweden, they said, well, it's because of folk building, which is this tradition of after-school, after-graduation learning uh, where people collaborate and they keep learning about things. And it's regarded not just as being like adult education classes, but an active part of society and democracy uh, that you have this folk building. And I think, well, not I think, their interpretation is that that's where that comes from. And I'm looking forward to having these conversations with my colleagues and peers in Africa this year because 
the African, as we'll look at in a second, the African results are way different to the rest of the world. And I want to know why. And I, I, for me, that's the fun part of this. Um, sorry, there are two fun parts of it. One, I really, really enjoy playing with data and trying to work out what's happening. Is there a trend here? Do I believe it? Or is that just like a, a glitch in the numbers? Uh, and then the second, so the first part is dealing with the numbers, but the second part is talking to the people. So I think I've got a trend here which I can, I can believe in. I'm not making this up. This is a real string of numbers that go in a particular direction. What I don't know is why. So you, people from Sweden, the Netherlands, Nigeria, why is it like this? And have a conversation about it. And the Kiwis, the Kiwis are always mad keen on um, micro learning. I don't know why, you know, they, they, but they, year after year, it seems to be very high up on their, on their table of choices. So we have a conversation about that. There's, they, they believe, and again, the Kiwis will come back, the New Zealanders will come back and say, well, we have a strong tradition of rolling your sleeves up and getting things done. And that kind of is reflected in their table. Um, uh, so anyway, that's part of the fun for me of doing, doing the whole thing. That's the, that's the story of it, where it came from, uh, where, it's, where it's gone through, uh, and where we are now. Uh, for me, what happens next, I think it's quite interesting, which is that the um, next year is going to be the 10th year of doing it. And I I'm, I'm, know that we are still short on Asian numbers. So it's going to be a drive, which I'll start this year, on getting enough contacts in Asia to make sure we have good numbers for Asia. So we've got, we can actually finally have a truly, truly global sentiment survey where I can say we've got every continent covered properly. I can look at different trends, speculate about why they might be, and from that position after the first 10 years, then go forward and start looking at what does that tell us year on year? So if you've got data from Africa for one year, great. But it really starts interesting when you've got it for three, four, five years, and you can look at different countries. And we've got great representation from Ghana, Nigeria, and South Africa, but I also want it from Ethiopia and Egypt and the other very populous countries. So we can start, Africa is an enormous continent. It, it, it really makes no sense to talk of it as being a coherent, homogenous whole. It, 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 the, the excitement of what happens in Lagos is going to be different to the excitement of what happens in Nairobi. And I want to uh, get to the point in a few years' time where we can have those conversations. So it's about building up a real understanding of, now understanding is too grand a word, but a, moving towards an understanding of how people are thinking about learning and learning technology in the workplace in different parts of the world. And it all comes. It all comes from those summers spent hitchhiking around Europe as a young man. And also uh, nine months spent traveling around Africa as a young man as well. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So, Don, you've talked about uh, the process and the data in, in general terms, but what, what does uh, this year's data indicate? What are people um, talking about or where, where, what, what's that sentiment in, in learning and teaching, or uh, oh, how do you phrase it? Training and learning? No? Learning and development. Learning and development? Yeah. And with a focus on workplace as well, Definitely. globally. Definitely. Yeah. So what's the data telling you? Let's look at the data and, and my interpretation of it uh, in the short term and then ask ourselves, well, so what? what? What 
earthly difference does it mean make? I think the first thing is that I asked people this to choose from a list of 15 things. And the, the thing that was top of the list was reskilling and upskilling was still the thing which everyone thought was the hottest thing this year. Um, as it was last year when it was new on the table. Now, something's never gone in at number one on the table as a new option, which is what happened last year. Normally, they come in at like number five or six or seven and then work their way slowly up to the top or towards the top and then come away again. This one this one came straight in the top, reskilling and upskilling. With a bullet, as they say. Like a bullet. In at number one, like a bullet. And the... Question is why? And a lot of people said, well, hang on, isn't reskilling and upskilling just what we do in learning and development anyway? The answer is yes, it is. But it's more complex than that. Yes, it's what we do, but the the important thing about it is that people chose those words. They didn't say, Well, I, I don't like that. I'm going to write training in the other option. That didn't happen. So people chose the word reskilling and upskilling. There's a reason for that which is that the words had been around for a long while as a phrase anyway. They'd been around since about um, January 2019. That was when we started to get a, an uptick in, if you look at Google Trends, and people actually looking for those words and typically using them. And why is that? Well, it's because people had been talking about the need to change how we had skills in the workplace for our employees so that they could deal with automation and robotics and AI. Then when the pandemic struck, it became entirely different. It became about making sure that people had jobs to do in the new world of work after the pandemic. But I think for me, the key thing is not so much that it's reskilling and upskilling, but it's that the fact that people are talking about skills rather than training. Um, skills have moved to being at the forefront of the agenda for people in learning and development in a way they haven't been in the past. And the idea of skills in the modern workplace has a particular meaning. It's around this sense that we're moving from people being tied to particular jobs to being much more task-focused, people working in project teams, which will be disbanded, put together again, and reformed for new projects. And... The only way you can understand what somebody can do and where they're going to be able to be used in the organization, where the gaps are, and how you should plan for the future, is by dealing not with some concept like qualifications or courses done, but skills. The idea of skills is what people can do. This has led to this phrase, which is in wide circulation, although I'm not sure that it's necessarily um correct which is that skills are the currency of the business so that you understand what people are doing and you understand what roles require in organizations and you you understand in terms of planning for the future what skills you're going to need and all this becomes the currency of the business you want that, that's how you know whether you can deliver on your promises as an organization well if that's the case, then we're moving towards a very different form of learning and development and organizational setup in the future than we've had at the moment. The other, the other topic that was new this year, which came in, was skills-based talent management, which was new at number six, which is pretty much where you'd expect a new option to be. But it was popular 
Um, and it's something which I would predict is going to go up next year. The idea behind this idea of skills-based talent management mm. is that you use skills as your lingua franca in the business, your, your currency, in order to understand people and roles and recruitment and training and planning for the future and succession planning. And that very likely a lot of organizations are moving to a world where they don't work like we used to more or less with the organization being a walled city set off from the rest of the world, but that the walls come down, they're much more porous. People might be on a full-term contract, they might be an employee, they might be on a part-time contract, they might be on a project contract, they might be on a joint venture, they might be shared from somebody else and so on. And the only way when people are moving so fluidly in and out of an organization, the only way to make sure that you've got a handle on whether you've got the right person doing the right role is to have some sense of what their skills are so you can slot them into the right position. So that's where the idea of skills-based talent management is going to be so important in the future. We will see whether they can deliver on the promise that they're giving at the moment, which is very high-powered, that it, they promise they can do an awful lot. We'll see whether they can deliver against that. So that's, if you like, that's the big picture result that I get out of this year's survey. There's lots of other bits and bobs that come out of it. One thing which I think I should point out is that we've got two options which are making their way up the table. And typically, typically over the course of the life of, a, of an option on the table, mostly they come in, they go up for a couple of years, and they start a long descent downwards. And this is because the question is, what's hot? Well, if something's hot, then you're excited about it, but people don't stay excited about something for more than two or three years. So they start making their way down. All right. Well, coaching and mentoring, I put on a couple of years ago, that has made its way up last year. It made its way up again this year, which is interesting because um, there's a lot of downward pressure on the votes. Everything else is going downwards because typically that's how you go, uh, how, the, how the options go. The other thing that went up, in last year's survey and up again in this year's survey was collaborative and social learning, which had been on its way down for the previous five years and then suddenly turned a corner. I think the reason behind this is that during lockdown, we got people learning from each other through a variety of platforms, whether it's Zoom, Teams and other things. Is this really high-powered and effective collaborative and social learning? Probably not. But... It was something. Now, it's been around. The idea of collaborative learning has been around for a long time, since, uh, uh, since at least 2006. But it's only really moved from being something of theoretical interest that we kind of feel we should do to being something people feel they are actually doing effectively, I think, in the last couple of years because of the pandemic, because of forcing people online to, to hang out together. Doesn't mean it's going to be done well necessarily, but it is happening. Now, I have to say, this is, of course, a aggregate view I'm talking about. When I say collaboration went up this year, yeah, it went up, but it only went up for the table as a whole with everybody. And it's it's not true that all geographies feel the same way about collaboration versus, for example, personalization. So I guess like the Swedish example yeah, that you yeah. uh, exactly. mentioned. So with, so the Swedes always rate collaboration extremely highly. And it's because they've got this tradition of folk building in their country, which is of people hanging out together. Exactly. Africa. Uh, well, actually, let's not go to Africa at the moment because this is just one year's results. But South America last year rated 
collaboration far higher than personalization. I mean, on the on the aggregate table, it's one point five percent difference, but um, South America put collaboration seven point three percent higher than personalization, which is an enormous gap in terms of the numbers we're talking about. It's a huge gap. Uh, Africa did the same thing. They they voted that collaboration was more important than personalization by 6.3%. Whereas North America and India both put personalization ahead of collaboration, and they do that again and again, year after year. So it's not just a one-off. This is a repeatable and foreseeable difference. Now, it's very tempting at this stage to say, well, South America is a uh, collaborative communal society, and North America is a much more individualistic society. And there's, of course, something in that. And if you read the great books about cultural differences um, by, uh, I don't know, Fonce Trompenards, for example, he'll, he'll absolutely back that up, and other people as well. But it doesn't make sense to talk about that as being your explanation for North America. If you then look at India, which has about the same difference between personalization and collaboration, but India is not an individualistic society in the same way that North America is. So... As I always say, one mustn't run too far ahead of the data. One can have some explanation for it, um, but we can't we can't explain all of it. I think one answer might be that North America we've got a big sample, four hundred people, so that that could represent the culture. It might be in India we've got a smaller sample, one hundred and seventy six people. It might be it's a sampling issue that we've got a lot of people who are very tech focused and they're very focused on personalization because there's a strong startup tradition in India. But what I'm saying is we we have to be cautious about being too glib with our easy cultural answers so that's the that's the some of the big picture numbers that come out of this but i think we should also also ask the question well okay you've got these numbers you've got people saying what's hot what's not so what <laughs> uh, and i think so what is also a very decent question to ask about any form of research i think if i go back right to the beginning that Sometimes what I'm looking for in the survey is this idea of what's going to be hot in the future. Well, when I started in 2014, the number one thing on the table was mobile delivery, which this year is right down towards the bottom of the table. And that's ubiquitous. Exactly. It's not hot anymore. Exactly. It's business as usual. It's gone from being something which was really, really exciting to something which we just take for granted. So that will happen with other options on the table. And, you know, I've seen things go up and come down. I think that. Something like virtual and augmented reality. So that's, that's a classic example. It's gone up and it's come down the table. It's on its way down. It will have an explosion this year, though. 2022, it's, it's moved from being something that's exciting and new to something that's rapidly becoming part of the business for various reasons, lower costs, better functionality of equipment, wider skills base, and so on. So that's a good example of me being able to say probably three years ago, I reckon that by 2022, virtual and augmented reality will be mainstream. And being able to predict it on the basis of seeing these patterns again and again, I feel very confident saying that the same thing is true for AI, which is also on its way down. It, it will come out, it, it's actually part of our lives now, but it'll be much more part of our lives, not as an individual thing, but as something that's built into other parts of the business. Coaching and mentoring is a different thing. That's on its way up, as I said. And I think one of the things that I could predict about that is that it's going to become, again, more mainstream, but not as we know it, but with coaching and mentoring being augmented by technology, either helping coaches with their regular day-to-day stuff 
or perhaps doing a matchmaking exercise. But there's one thing which has really puzzled me about the survey and continues to do so, which is that not everything has that pattern of going up and coming down. There are some things which resolutely stay more or less in the middle of the table. And there are two options like that, showing value and consulting more deeply with the business. Now, these two options are for me all about how seriously does learning and development, the training function, take the business? Do they firstly consult with the business to understand what the business need is and then do something and show the value afterwards? Well, if they do, and I think this is absolutely crucial, if they do, then we're on the way to being not a fulfillment house, which just turns out courses, but rather part of the business that supports performance and is integral to the strategy of the business. But the fact that these two options are regularly in the middle of the table, not moving their way up and not going down, suggests to me that there's a core of people who support this stuff year after year, mm. but that it hasn't got the widest spread support that it needs. That, for me, is an intriguing question that I want to answer. I want to know, as the survey goes on, and in different geographies, are we taking business more seriously in some places than other? And if so, how are people dealing with it? What are they doing about it? That is, though, something for the future. I'm hoping, as I say, after the first 10 years of the survey done, we've got to a good base position. In the next 10 years, we'll have, I think, some exciting answers to get out of the data. In this episode, I chatted with Donald H. Taylor, an educator and researcher specializing in workplace learning and development. You can find out more about this episode in the show notes, including links to more information about Donald and more information about his current and previous survey results. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.